Welcome to the IP2 Podcast. I'm Shay Ashby, and as always, I'm joined by Felix Chung. We are honored to be joined by Yuki Lee Bender. She is one of the most successful flesh and blood players in our game today, from winning the Canadian National Championship in 2021 to the recent Calling Las Vegas one week ago, with numerous high placements and tournaments in between. Thank you so much for joining us today, Yuki. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I'm thrilled to be here and chatting with both of you. It's a, it's a pleasure and an honor. So can you give us a little bit of an elevator pitch about yourself, a little bit about your background in games and uh, your professional background and hobbies outside of Fab, maybe? Yeah, for sure. So I've been pretty much playing cards most of my life. Um, I I was playing cards since I was in like first grade, I think. Um, Learned to play Magic the Gathering, mostly kitchen table. I didn't really know about what organized play was. I played all through um, elementary school and high school, though, and I I knew the rules. I built decks. I, I more or less knew what I was doing. Um, but I think gaming got more competitive for me when I started playing uh, real-time strategy games. So Warcraft 3, Starcraft uh, 2 were big ones for me. And then later I got into uh, Hearthstone was kind of like when I got reunited with card games. And then eventually I revisited Magic with uh, Arena because I wanted to draft. I learned that draft was a thing and I thought it was so cool. And so I was well, I'll go back and play Magic as only a limited player, which is actually what I did for quite a while around um, Guilds of Ravnica. So I think that's like 20, or Ravnica Allegiance. That's like 2019-ish. I started playing 2018-ish, somewhere in there. Um, and so that was kind of my first foray into like competitive card gaming, um, although mostly limited focused. And then I'd say Flesh and Blood when I picked it up around Crucible of War is the first game I got into in terms of Constructed. Um Professionally, I'm a teacher. I actually went to business school, so I teach marketing, accounting. Um, I have a minor in math, so I teach math as well. And that's sort of a lot of what I've done that's been my day job. I'm actually kind of changing gears right now. I'm not returning to being a classroom teacher. I'm going to be substituting part-time and traveling a little more for fab, doing some coaching, some writing Um Stuff like that, just a little more flexibility. I can take about three days off of the year when I'm a classroom teacher, and there's not very many events. So I kind of had to make a choice of um, one or the other had to take a bit of a backseat. So I'm going to give it a shot and see how it goes. So far, so good. Awesome. We're going to touch on that a little bit later in the show. Um, I'd like to start with the most recent topic. Last weekend was the Calling Las Vegas. Have you had a chance to look back and reflect on that week? Yeah, kind of gradually. I was honestly like in pretty big disbelief about the whole weekend. Um, It was just like really an incredible weekend. There was a lot of things that went well for me uh, in the event. And um, just like in my life too, I feel like a lot of things have been kind of like lining up. Like I'm happy with the direction I'm going in terms of work. I'm happy. um, I got to spend time with my girlfriend in Vegas and that was really nice. And like just stuff between us went really well there. and it's like sort of long distance. So getting to try that out and see how that went was was really wonderful. And just like in a lot of ways, it felt like a lot of things kind of lined up well for me that weekend. And it was like, it, it felt, I don't know, it was like, oh, how can this be real kind of thing? So starting to kind of come down from that a bit and just it's it's sinking in. But, but yeah, it's definitely like a really special weekend for me, for sure. I had the opportunity to work on the judge side of the PTI event and the calling on Saturday and Sunday. And I did watch you basically uh, 
just stake your or plant your flag at the top tables or the top row the entire weekend at the calling and it seemed like you were very uh, calm and collected the entire time I think you could tell there was a difference between yourself uh, maybe someone that has been there before and maybe a lot of the others that I saw next to you that maybe were a little bit in disbelief or didn't know how to how to approach being in that situation being an x1 or xo like do you do you feel like at this point it's uh it's pretty comfortable for you to be in a big tournament like that yeah i think i think some of that is definitely experience i think some of it is also just mindset stuff um going into events like i always want to do well of course everybody wants to do well but um my focus is always much more on like process and making good decisions and being happy with my gameplay. And that's like really what I'm always looking at. And I always try and, especially if I notice myself getting like a little bit stressed out or I'm like getting nervous, I try and focus back and go, okay, I'm going to go like one decision at a time, turn by turn and just do what I've been doing and just try and execute as well as I can. And at the end of the day, like we're playing a card game. You can get lucky and you can get unlucky and nobody wins an event without getting lucky. I can tell you I got I got lucky in a number of spots this weekend. There were spots where like I had to draw three of a kind and I drew three of a kind or my opponent had to kind of miss and they missed and, and that that's what let me get back in the game. And, you know, nobody wins an event without getting lucky. So I think just kind of like reminding yourself that you don't have full control and all you can do is give yourself the best chances is one way for me to really like take off the pressure and sort of just focus on the most important thing, which is the game and what you can what you can actually physically control. Yeah, that's really good advice. It's also not the first time that I've heard somebody say that before also. So I think it's really starting to resonate with people that aren't professional that you do need that aspect as well as playing well. So mm -hmm. when it comes back to the event, when did you feel like you had a chance to do well? Like, was there a certain point in the event or the, the second day? Um, you know, when did it kind of like click for you that this was, you know, this was a potential um, success? I guess it's hard to say, like going into the event, I felt good about my prop, which is always nice. Like sometimes you have events and you're like, oh, I don't know about my deck choice. Um, I was like a bit on the fence about if I was going to play Icelander or Lexi. I played Icelander in the PTI event. It didn't go so well. I switched to Lexi, but I felt really confident. I played the deck a bunch. Mm -hmm. So that always feels good. And then I'd say maybe when I finished... I always feel like getting into day two is like a little tough. You play eight rounds, you need to go X and two. And it's like going five and three is not bad. Like you, you yeah. did pretty well for yourself, but you didn't make day two. And ending day two, uh, ending day one at X and one is just a great feeling. Because from there, it's like, well, if I can go four and one, then I top eight. And that's, you know, that's like a long armory or like a, a pro quest or something. Like I've, I've done yeah. this before. That's okay. So probably when I was X1 at the end of day one was when it was like, oh, there's a real shot here. Yeah, for sure. When you, um, you kind of mentioned prep, are you always prepping, uh, whether there's an event on the horizon or do you specifically start uh, a prep phase once you've committed to going to uh, a major event? Um, kind of both. So I definitely do prepare more when there's a major event on the horizon and we, when we get close to it. Um, but I find it hard to maintain that level of engagement and focus with the game. Like it's just, it's really draining. And I put most of my free time into flesh and blood leading up to an event for a week or two. And you, you can't, you just can't keep doing that. 
Um, but I'm often still thinking about and playing flesh and blood on the side. And I'd say that when we're approaching, it kind of shifts. So like if uh, we're, we're approaching bright lights and I guess I, I still have Canadian nationals, so I'm still kind of in, in prep mode here. Yeah. Um, that's coming up in a week as of when we're recording. But once that's done and we're shifting gears into bright lights, usually my, what I would consider prep is like, I'll pick up a new deck. I'll be like, I don't, I don't know how to play, I don't know, Dromai. Maybe I'm going to learn Dromai or like I haven't played Dash. So like I haven't really thought about it, but maybe maybe I would learn Dash now because there's a mechanologist set coming up and I just go, oh, I'll just go to Armory. I'll play some Dash, try and learn something new. And that's sort of a way of like having fun with the game and doing something low key, but also feeling like I'm making progress. And then I have another deck that I can play and feel okay about if I need right. to. Okay. Yeah. You mentioned Canadian Nets um, after your win in Vegas. How are you feeling about Canadian Nets? Well, <laughs> um, it's a pretty big confidence boost. I, yeah, it, it just feels good. It's like, okay, yeah. my CC is in a good spot. I generally consider myself a pretty good limited player. I'm a little bit more nervous about Monarch Draft than other draft formats. I just feel like the decks are so powerful and you can just yeah. kind of lose. But... Um, yeah, I don't know. Feeling pretty good going into the event. I like where I'm at. There's like a couple things to hash out in testing. Like I need to try out the uh, Charles Dunn's deck. I haven't I haven't tested right. into that really much, yeah. and so that's something to figure out. But there's, um, you know, we got a week, so it should be okay. Do you feel pressure to place well in events, or what kind of ex- expectation do you set for yourself at this point? I guess I sort of we sort of touched on this earlier, but I don't. I don't like to put pressure on myself, especially not like results uh, related pressure. I feel like focusing on results doesn't doesn't help me. It often hurts mm-hmm. me. Um, and it really is about focusing on like the process, the prep and all of that and and just trying to do the best that I can. And I, I find that that's kind of like the, the biggest thing for me. Um, that doesn't mean that I have like no goals or expectations. Like if I would love to win Canadian Nats, and I think in terms of like a goal, like I'd be pretty happy with the weekend if I top eight. If I top eight, I'll feel pretty proud of that. I think regardless yeah. of how the top eight goes. Um, but you know, I might not, and that's okay too. It's card games; it's part of you know, it's part of it. And as long as I feel like I did a good job in that event and I played well, then I think I'll still be okay with the result. Just to touch on something you mentioned a little bit earlier, you said that you're pretty confident as a limited player, and I'd just like to extend that to not only yourself, but a lot of the other strong players from Vancouver, where you're from. I think your whole city is known for being very strong at at limited. And just to share something personally, that's something that I'm very envious of in a way, because... uh, the previous two times I've been to nationals, I've been um, sunk by poor performances in in the limited portion. And I'd love it if you could elaborate just a little bit more about why you like limited so much when it comes to games like you mentioned Magic the Gathering before and now here in Flesh and Blood. Yeah, so my favorite part about limited is... It somehow just feels like such a pure form of playing the game. Like all your cards matter. And it reminds me the most, like I mentioned, like growing up as a kid and playing limited. And I remember like 
like I remember having an experience of like opening up a booster pack and like not knowing what cards could be in that booster pack and opening a card and just being like, wow, this is like so cool. And this can fit in whatever deck I'm building. And it makes my like, I don't know, my elf deck or my dragon deck, you know, so much better. And that's like really exciting. And limited is sort of like that for me. It feels like I get that excitement of like, oh, I got that yellow minnowism that you know like it's not a red one or a blue one but mm. i got a yellow and it was the last pick of the last last time i see a new card in pack in pack three there's no other chances to get this card and i got it and it makes my deck so much better and that's like really really exciting and i think getting being able to like play those commons that aren't the constructed level commons and make the most out of them and be excited about them and feel good about them is really um really special and also like very um it's a very like creative and fluid process. And I, I kind of like that. I feel like as fun as constructed is and building decks and constructed is interesting. A lot of the play patterns get like very fixed and kind of uh, repetitive and mechanical, whereas limited is very um, dynamic and shifting, especially when it's at its best. The, you know, your decks can be so varied and different and every game is kind of wild. And yeah, it's just, uh, I don't know. There's something about it that just like really kind of embodies what I feel like trading card games are like meant to be, even though we usually play constructed. <laughs> yeah, no, the, the way that you've described it makes it sound incredibly interesting. And I know deep down behind every draft, uh, behind every decision of what to pick, what to pass, what you hope to wheel, that all of those gears should be turning. But I don't know if it's just our community in particular or for, again, anyone that feels like a bit of a disconnect between constructed and draft. Um, would you have any general advice to those people how, you know, to, to give draft another look? Would it be to try to appreciate the, I guess, the individual power level of each card in the way that you described with the yellow minnowism or... What would you say to someone that's just struggling to make that connection? Yeah, I guess if you're not, yeah, I, I think, I think a lot of times, like what I hear from there's there's like a number of different things I hear from players, but I think like a big one is just trying to appreciate the cards for what they are and understand that like we're playing limited. It's gonna get a little bit scrappy. Our decks mm -hmm. aren't perfect, but that's like kind of part of the fun and just trying to like improvise and make the most of it is kind of special and part of the process. And and everybody has that, like nobody, you know, like if you have a draft deck, like, of course, like, Oh yeah, if I could change this card, I would change it. Like everybody's draft deck is going to be like that no matter how good it is. And just trying to kind of like, rather than like fight that and be like, Oh, I don't, I don't like my draft deck where it's like, not that powerful compared to a blitz deck or whatever. Just like understand that you're playing not perfect flesh and blood, but you can still do really sweet things. And and sometimes sometimes those low power drafts are really fun. Like I remember I had a game with um, Tarek Patel in last year's Nats. It was I think it was actually a feature match, and we were in a pod with three Dromai's. Both our Dromai decks were really really bad, <laughs> like really bad. We didn't really have a way to kill each other and just like that game was really fun and really interesting and i remember making decisions like i'm not gonna play this yellow flex 
I'm going to arsenal it and pitch two reds into it to attack for five. So I get more value out of my yellow flags. And like three cards for five damage is awful. Mm -hmm. But when both your decks are terrible and you just need to get every little piece you can out of your deck, like that, that could be the difference. And it, it did end up mattering quite a bit. But I just, I like things like that and limited. And it doesn't, it's not always intuitive. And you don't always, it's not like I had thought about that beforehand, but you just go, wait a second, like this is important here. And I think, I don't know, just be open to making decisions you might not typically make. I want to go back to the yellow randomism for a second. Uh, besides it being a great example, you already shaped the way I'm going to look at future drafts by not thinking, oh man, I would think of it as, sorry, I would think of it as, uh, too bad this isn't red, as opposed to it being like, great, this is yellow, this fixes a lot of problems. And even just the shift in way, the way you look at cards that you wouldn't necessarily want in your deck, I think can even just help change the way you look at your draft and your limited experience and think of your deck in a more positive light and then also retool the way you're building your your deck whereas you might not necessarily want the card but you realize it's going to fix a lot of problems in your deck mm -hmm. yeah I, I think it can be it can make the experience like more fun rather than scary and mm -hmm. I'll tell you, like some of the most satisfying drafts I have are when I think my deck's pretty bad and I still manage to get a 2-1 out of it. You know, it's like, this is not a good limited deck. It's not. If you'd ask me if I'm happy with this deck and this is the deck I want for Nationals, like, no, this is not. Like, I'd love to do a redraft, but, you know, this is the deck that I have and, like, how can I try and get there and you know you can do that through gameplay you can do that through different things but can you can you try to find a way to make it work and that challenge is um kind of special and, and sometimes you even like 3-0 with the terrible deck and then you have a fun story so i don't know one of my uh my my podcast co-host jay i think is like one of the most incredible people that i know for this of just like playing the worst limited decks you've ever seen and he just does so well with them and you just you know hearing his stories always laughing always having fun and i think that's that's a lot of it for me at least it sounds like it, it's a, a place to be more creative as well and find new lines because you need to find different ways to apply damage or even what is your win condition like you mentioned before with the draw my example how are you going to close this game out yeah, absolutely. And just um, to maybe add to, to what you're saying here, Yuki, about making the most of of something bad or a deck that's a little bit suboptimal, one thing that I hear quite often from players is, oh, I lost this pod in the draft because the player next to me switched lanes or I got train wrecked by XYZ or just externalizing that locus of control because it's it's hard to know a lot of the times did you actually get trade wrecked were you just doomed to failure before you even you know sat down to play your first game or not that's scary and e even for myself i mean sometimes i don't know like this deck looks like garbage but can i win or or is it actual garbage and it's uh mm. it, it can't win anything at all and I guess my question to you would be, how often is it for, you know, a very good player like yourself in a pod with other players at your level to truly have something that's out of your control and there's no way you can avoid going 1-2 or 0-3 in your pod? Is it as much as people think it is? Uh, no, I, I think it is 
Not as much as people think it is. I think limited is really skill testing. Um, I actually keep track of, I actually keep track of um, just like win rates and stuff like that across different heroes and different formats. And I do significantly better in limited. I win about 10% more of my matches in limited than I do in constructed and rated events. So I think that this idea that you don't have control over limited or it's random is like, maybe just a lack of experience or like maybe people just like not wanting to own up to that or not being able to see what their mistakes are. Like, so it can be hard to identify where your mistakes are sometimes in limited is not always obvious, but I do think that, you know, you can consistently do very well. And I feel like I very, very often two, one or better. Um, I did saying that I did go one, two at armory today. I think, I think I had a good deck, though. I think I had a good deck. I lost a very close game. I think I made a mistake in gameplay in the other game that I lost. Um, so I'm not upset about the draft. And it happens. Everybody won twos or oh threes. But um, I do think that strong players, if they really understand limited, will will 2-1 the vast majority of the time. And I think a lot of it, like you mentioned, I like that you mentioned like the getting train wrecked or feeling like, oh, it's because someone cut me or or whatever. And what I would say if like that's what's giving you pause about limited is try and focus less on like what happened to you and how you couldn't do anything and reframe it to think about like, okay, I was drafting, I don't know, chain. And then there was three chains in the pod and my deck sucked. That's too bad. Well, was there a way that I could have noticed that this was happening during the draft? And I could have maybe picked cards slightly differently where I give myself a chance to not be the third chain. And maybe this whole draft doesn't pan out that way. And of course, like at that point, everything changes and you you don't know how Mm -hmm. the draft would go. But um, there's a lot of spots like that. Um, Sometimes it's as simple as like, you look at a pack and you go, yeah, I have three chain cards, but and and there's a chain card in this pack, but it's like a yellow bounding. And that's not that great. But there's also these this like hooves of the shadow beast. And I don't I don't have any Leviah cards, but you know, if I draft this, I could maybe be Leviah. And if I don't draft the yellow bounding, like I'm not gonna miss it in my chain deck. I'm not gonna be like, wow, I wish I had that yellow bounding demigon. It's like it's it's fine, I can give up a pick. And sometimes finding those spots to give yourself a little flexibility. And it doesn't mean like because I take the hooves, I'm now Leviah. It's just giving myself the option. Well, now I have the hooves. And if I have another weak chain pack and there's like a dread scream or something, then like, yeah, maybe I am thinking about being Leviah. And just looking to see if there's spots in those packs where you can go, actually, you know what? Thinking back, my hero was kind of cut. And maybe I had an opportunity to pick up a strong card for another class or dra- draft a strong generic and give myself just like a little more flexibility. And maybe I could have wound up in a different seat. And I think if you start getting, yeah, I think if you start looking for those ways in which you can have more control and just focusing on the things that, you know, your decisions and what you could have done differently, um, for one, is really interesting and it will make you a way better limited player if you keep doing it. And for two, I think it just, takes away a lot of that like helplessness in the draft. I think more often than not, I'm reasonably happy with my deck. It's not always a 10 out of 10, but I'm like, this is a playable deck. I could 2-1 with it. I think most of the time I feel like my deck is pretty solid. And um, I think if you draft a lot and you practice a lot and you try to 
think in this way where you're focusing on what you can control and how to avoid those really bad drafts, I think you can learn to do it too. Like any, anyone can. That's, uh, that's great advice, Yuki. Thank you so much. And honestly, in the last 10, 15 minutes, you've filled me with a lot of inspiration to go out and try and fire up some draft pods here. Um, <laughs> I guess my, my last question on this topic would be just going back just beyond just yourself and over to your community in Vancouver. And I, like you mentioned, there's yourself, there's Jay, um, and there's a lot of other players that are all very strong at limited. Um, do you think there's anything special about the Vancouver community that makes it such a concentration of players that are all interested? Like, is it a situation where, you know, there's a couple and that's an infectious kind of interest? Or is there something about your mutual backgrounds? Or is there something in the water supply in Vancouver? I don't know what you guys are doing. Like... Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think there's a couple of things at play. One of them is that I think I think to some degree it is a few people. Um, you mentioned Jay and myself being huge advocates for limited and just loving limited. And also, in addition to that, um, Eric Lehrer was originally kind of like the main person toing in Vancouver and who really got the scene going at all in the first place. Like there, there was no fab in Vancouver, and he toed and made a scene. Um, and then in the Vancouver scene, like owes a lot to Eric, I think. Um, but Eric loves draft. Like he just loves draft and limited. It's his favorite format. And so to some degree, um, Eric was running a lot of limited events cause that's what he liked. And Jay and I were super excited about it. And I think when you have this like dedicated player base of people who really love limited and you also are playing a lot of limited cause that's. I mean, for a long time in Vancouver, you couldn't play Classic Constructed. You could not play Classic Constructed Armories. Um, you could only play Draft Armories. There was like three places doing Draft every week, and there was no CC Armories. So I think to some degree, it's just like drafting a lot and the way that that has gone. Um, and I think it's also just drafting with players who understand Limited and who like Limited. And and Jay, Jay and I and Eric as well are all like, perfectly happy to look at people's decks if they want us to like you know we're not aggressive about it but somebody's like hey mm -hmm. like what do you think of my draft deck I'll, I'll gladly take a look at it and give feedback and go this works this doesn't work you're missing this um those kinds of things and there's a lot of people in our community that started out they came from lcgs uh, like Netrunner and l5r we have a lot of people from those games and there's there's no limited in those games and I lose to those guys all the time now. <laughs> I lose to them all the time in limited. So it's like, it, it's something that you can learn and get good at if you want to. But if you don't do it very much and you're kind of scared of it and you go, oh, I don't like limited, like you're, you're probably not going to get good at it. But, but yeah, there's a lot of people that have come from games that didn't have any limited. And they, they, I remember them even saying, they're like, you know, I show up at Armory every week and I could never beat you ever. Like you beat me every single time. And I remember the first time I beat you and I was like, oh, I like that didn't register with me. Like I didn't, I wasn't thinking about it in that way. I was just trying to enjoy the games, but, but that's cool. Like, I'm glad that you got that victory and that, that, that was rewarding. But I think that's a lot of it is like having that experience and getting to learn from people. And we kind of just like all make each other better. Like it's, it's really cool to see, um, 
sometimes we drive down to ProQuests in the US or something, and we'll have people who like are like solid armory players, but they're not usually topping, and they'll they'll go and they'll top eight limited uh, RTNs and stuff like that. And it's just, um, yeah, I think it's just a matter of drafting with strong drafters and you get better by doing it. Just like, just like anything. If you play constructed with strong players, you get better at constructed. Can you tell us a little bit more about your local scene in Vancouver? Like how would you characterize the community there? Yeah, I'd say that the scene is small, but growing and pretty dedicated. So for a long time, our armories would be getting like six to eight people. Recently, I think we're getting about 13-ish, sometimes 16 uh, in that range. And there's about, there's like two armories that fire weekly. And then there's an armory that does, it's actually the one I went to earlier today. It's like a, they do two drafts in a right, uh, two drafts back to back and they do it every other week. So it's like essentially like two armories at once and then okay. Then no armory because uh, they're they're a little bit farther out and people have to commute for it. It's about an hour drive from from Vancouver, so it's kind of a nice way to spend the afternoon once in a while. But um, yeah, so we have three armories, eight to thirteen people. There's been kind of like an uptick recently. I would say there's more people getting into the game, but it is it is small. Like for a pro quest, we might get twenty to thirty ish yeah. kind of thing. It's not it's not huge, but there's quite a few very strong players, I would say. Yeah, that was going to be my follow-up question was, your scene actually sounds to be very similar to ours in size, yet you guys seem to have a very strong local scene. And I was going to ask you, is do you have any idea what contributes to the strength of the player base there in what would could be considered a smaller scene? It's hard to say. Um, I think some of it is just that everybody's involved a lot like i i think i think our scene had like a huge leg up in the sense that we had i mentioned eric uh toing and running events and also playing in them eric played the game like super early and was mm -hmm. playing with people from new zealand like way back in the day and just had like a very good understanding of the game like at the, at the start of the game eric was a really 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 strong player and way ahead of the curve and i think just having him at events and playing against him every week pushed me and a lot of other people to get yeah. better. Um, yeah. And and I think that's kind of all fed into itself. Like I I did well at nationals the first time and I ended up winning 2021 nationals and I've gotten so much stronger as a player and I'm still going to armories and people are playing against me and Eric's still there and Jay's still there. And we have people from the LCG scene who have had pretty big success in their respective games and they're coming and they're playing against strong players and have a strong card game background themselves. And they've, so they're picking it up and getting better too. And we all kind of, um, help each other out. I yeah. feel like what I hear from some friends in Ontario is that, um, some of their scenes, like the strong players just don't go to armories. And I think that's like a real, it's a real shame. Cause it's like, on one hand, it's like, well, my armory is like, not the, the I get the sentiment like the armory is not like the most valuable game gameplay for me because the players aren't as strong. But also like if you don't show up and you don't play with them, like of course they're not going to be, they're not going to get better. Yeah. You know what I mean? Whereas if you invest into your local community and you are present and you're there and you play with people and you help them, like they're going to get better too and they'll help you get better. Is sort of how I see it. 
Yeah, Felix and I kind of believe the same thing that um, a strong scene helps develop strong players, which then you can go out farther and obviously do well in more events. And one of the questions that I did want to ask you was, so somebody like yourself that is, I guess, pursuing this game professionally, do, do you attend armories and how often do you attend armories and how hard do you try to make those armories? And how I guess also how important are they to you? Because I've heard that before that um, pro-level players or high-level players don't attend armories because of that thing. It's not the most um, constructive to their gameplay and getting better. Yeah, um, I do attend armories. I'd say, so I kind of mentioned there's like the two weekly ones and then the one bi-weekly. I would say that I usually make like roughly half of them these days. So I'll go to like one of the weekly ones and half of the bi-weekly ones. And sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less. But I um, I do make an intentional effort to go. And there was a long time when I was going to every single armory because honestly, like, our scene was so small. I was just worried I wasn't going to get to play Flesh and Blood anymore if I didn't right. keep going. Um, just had to like wanted to see the scene do well and wanted to see the scene grow. Um, and I'm glad that it's like not in that place anymore. Where like if I feel like I need to take a break, I can, and I don't have to worry about like the event not firing and then people right. not wanting to go. Um, so I think that's positive. But I, I do intentionally try to make a point of going. I love my locals. They're awesome. They're they're a lot of fun to play with, and I I like being out there. Um, sometimes, if it's like if I'm traveling, especially, um, I may miss an armory because it's just like like I don't know. I come back from Vegas, I fly in Monday morning. It's like oh, I don't know if I want to go to the Monday night armory tonight. Yeah. Um, so I don't make all of them, and maybe like right before an event, if it's the week before nationals. I'm kind of on the fence about my Monday night armory. If I can do a, if I can do some testing with somebody that I normally test with and and do and work on something that I really need to work on and iron out for that event, I'll probably do that. But if not, I'll go to my armory instead and be pretty happy with that. But but outside of those like that crunch period right before the event, I'm pretty much always trying to go when I can. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Moving on a little bit, you tweeted a few months ago about lacking events in the northwest region of North America. How has your community adapted to being more distant to some of the more major events? I think people to some degree have started traveling a little bit more. Um, we often will like road trip and carpool down, carpool down to um, Seattle and Portland area for ProQuest and RTNs. And it's to the point that like a lot of them sort of know us and they're like, oh, it's the Canadians and, and <laughs> because they see us down there. Yeah. Um, so usually we'll try to find like a weekend where we don't have any and there's maybe two events down there and we can go and hit the Saturday and the Sunday as a group. And that's pretty fun. Um, I know some people went to battle hardened LA recently and then Vegas was, we were all very excited for Vegas just cause it's relatively close. Like it's a two and a half hour flight. It's pretty doable. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's much different than flying to the Midwest where it's like, you know, you can't get a direct flight so you're spending eight hours on the plane and there's a time difference and it's just like it's it's such a huge commitment to get there it's really really tough so i think there's been a combination of like there actually just being a few more events on the west coast since i tweeted that like at the time it was just like there really wasn't anything and yeah. there there have been a few more which i think was kind of all i wanted it was not that like we need all the events it's just like can we mm-hmm. get a couple and, and we have which is fantastic um and then people also just being 
a little more willing to travel. Um, not not everybody. I think some people are. We definitely have like people who just go to armories and locals and ProQuests if they're in town, and that's kind of it. But um, the more dedicated people are are traveling a little bit. Have you noticed a, a growth in the dedicated people that are playing the game that started to travel since they um, since they started and maybe gained more confidence in the, in the game and playing? Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of them have been doing better and better. I know, um, to shout out a few people, Ian Smith, I believe, top-aided. It was either the Battle Hardened in LA or the PTI event on the next day. One of the two, I believe, he top-aided. Um, Eli also top at the calling recently playing Lexi. He's been playing Lexi forever. And I talk to him about Lexi all the time because he's, I don't know, he's a local and he's been enthusiastic about her since before she was super good in meta. Um, and it's just cool to see him like go and do really well. And I think he had a pretty deep run in Baltimore too. Um, like he definitely day twoed. I think he cashed. Um, he was like at the top tables, like pretty much right next to me until one of the last rounds. I think he might've nice. lost like second last, I think he might've dropped down to X3 on like the second last round or something like that. So yeah, cool to see him doing well. One more final question on the, the Vancouver scene. What are your thoughts surrounding the battle hardened, uh, coming up? I'm super excited. I'm glad that we got a battle hardened. I'm curious to see what the attendance will be. Mm. Um, I hope that it's good so that we can continue to have more. Um, I know some people are planning to travel like from um, Alberta and maybe Seattle and Portland area and the island. Yeah. So I'm hoping we get, and the, and the Okanagan as well. So I'm hoping that we get a lot of surrounding people coming in for the Battle Hardened and that would be really exciting. Um, so we'll see. To, to some degree, I'm like having trouble wrapping my head around it because there's been vegas and nationals and just like so much stuff on the go but um yeah. very much looking forward to that um do you have any inkling of uh any more east coast players that might be traveling out like perhaps from ontario or anything like that i know a few are like i know um rob from sparker geniuses i know yeah. nia uh, nia tran is um nia is one of the people that i test with all the time and uh, and a good friend um but I'm not too sure outside of that. Not to say there yeah. aren't people, but yeah, maybe, maybe Brody's coming. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we Felix and I have talked about it a couple of times. We really want um, there to be a really good showing for Vancouver because of what you already said. Like, if we can show LSS that um, we might be light in population, but we're dedicated player base out there, that it'll help the West Coast uh, events. Yeah, totally. Yeah, Alberta will bring the numbers. It's it's exciting because our scenes don't really get the chance to cross over as often now that both scenes have enough like tier two type of events. Mm -hmm. And I I know yeah, it's a it's a fun test of skill for for us because we we don't get to play against you guys as often. Yeah, yeah, it comes up every once in a while, and we always kind of like chat and intersect at nationals. And and I know a few of uh, the Vancouverites have flow in or driven over to some of your uh, pqs and stuff but mm. yeah yeah just a, a quick um funny aside but uh i i was listening to the on the bobble episode where jay 
kind of called us uh, soft, and <laughs> we, we kind of shared that around a little bit. And we took it personally. Made us, it made us practice a little bit harder. <laughs> it, it definitely motivated a, a group of people here. Yeah. 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 Jay, um, <laughs> Jay, not one to mince his words. Sometimes I haven't really like gone out. I actually haven't been able to go out and attend one of your RTNs or PQs, so I don't I don't have too much of an opinion. But I know that I, I've seen, I know a number of you are pretty strong. Like there are people that do well at Nats every year, and yeah, um, no. it's it's yeah. just a funny story. We we don't yeah. take it personally, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that it had sort of like a positive outcome, and that like people are like, oh, we're gonna we're gonna train and we're gonna show them that that's. That's always a good way to to handle that, I think. Yeah, exactly. One of the best parts about Fab, actually, for me, is igniting some of that competitive spirit within me, but in a very healthy way, because we we mm -hmm. do the same thing with the folks from Edmonton, and we we kind of rib each other and give each other a hard time, but <laughs> it's all in in good fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. All right. Well, well, we'll move on to our next topic here. And Yuki, I think the, the first time I played against you was online and you were playing Prism and I understood that you were playing Prism for a while. And after that, of course, you're very well known for Lexi and Icelander. And some people just say you're, you're a specialist because you, you're very dedicated to, to those uh, particular heroes. So I'm just curious, first of all, what is it about those heroes that that you that resonates with you or makes you want to play them, whether they're in the meta or out of the meta or good or bad? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think that they all kind of have some similarities. Um, they feel very interactive. And I think I like, maybe it's like, coming from playing magic like i always like playing like the the blue interactive decks and magic um where you're interacting on your opponent's turn and you're and you're doing a lot of that whether whether it's like a more aggressive strategy or a more controlling one but um i kind of see these decks as that in flesh and blood um they're presenting a lot of problems and trying to like take your opponent off of their game plan and i like that kind of like tempo-ish gameplay and Lexi may not really be that much of a tempo deck anymore. I think she's just a very, very good aggressive deck with a little bit of disruption. But um, for a long time, she was. I think when she was an ice hero, she was like the closest thing that Flesh and Blood had to a tempo deck. You were really controlling the flow of the game, and that was so much of the hero, and I really enjoyed that about her. And I think Icelander sort of has a lot of similarities there. You're doing it at instant speed and on your opponent's turn, but there's a lot of like very careful interaction and understanding how your opponent's turn is likely to play out and how you can interact and disrupt that. And I, I find that really satisfying. Prism, maybe slightly less interactive, but there is something about like creating these board states and understanding how your opponent can interact with your board state and how you can make it very difficult for them to interact. So I, I found I found something about like that trade-off of when do I develop auras versus push damage and what is my role in the game and that always being fluid, being um, really fascinating. Um, and so many decisions around like, because so many of your cards are yellow, which ones do I play? Which ones do I block with? They're all kind of good and I need to figure out what I'm supposed to be doing right now at any given time. And, and 
I see similarities there for Icelander and Prism for sure, uh, because because Icelander is so blue heavy as well. Um, so yeah, I think that's kind of what draws me towards those decks. I do play other decks, like I've played, especially back in the day, I played Viscerai a lot, but I think I've kind of figured out that I don't tend to like the pure aggro decks as much. I like the decks that can be a little bit more mid-rangey, play a little bit of a longer game, and to me that feels just like a little bit more controlled or like a little bit less random like i get frustrated if i play briar and i'm like well i just hope i see channel mount <laughs> i don't see channel mount yeah. and i'm just like why do i have this hand that doesn't do anything like that just drives me nuts so yeah some combination of the tempo aspects interacting with your opponent and the um the consistency of the decks i, I think that's kind of why i've gone back to lexi a lot lately is the deck is just so much more consistent now which is yeah nice no that that makes a lot of sense and actually some of my favorite matches that i've watched of you i think were during pro tour was it season two when you played lexi into starvo into the starvo meta that, that would that... have been the first the first okay. pro tour. yeah yeah and i i mean it it just spoke to me how much you connected with the hero like lexi despite the fact that Starvo and Shane were running around everywhere, that you still stuck to your guns and found a way to make it work, obviously. Because if, if I recall, you still did pretty well at that event. Um, and I, I guess looking at that and just thinking about how unfavored people like considered Lexi to be at the time, but you still found a way to, to make it work. If things were even worse... And if all of your selected heroes were truly in like tier D or unplayable into the meta, do you think, you know, you would still try to find a way to make it work, just stick to your guns or would, would that move you to, to another hero? No, I think I would, I would play something else. Um, I like playing decks that I enjoy, but I need to believe that I'm giving myself a good shot and Um, Lexi for Pro Tour 1 was a deck that we deliberated on a lot. It felt close, but not good enough for a long time. I thought I was going to play Prism, but then I realized Prism had some like pretty big problems into Chain if the Chain was strong enough, um, was what I was finding. And it was actually like very stressful. I wasn't sure what I was going to be playing for the event. I didn't like any of my options. I couldn't solve. We were pretty happy with the Starvo and the Chain matchup, but we couldn't solve the Prism matchup. It felt really, really hard if the Prism knew what they were doing. And um, we happened to kind of like a couple of days before the event, figure out a way to change our sideboard, change the way we're approaching the matchup and get it pretty close to 50-50. And we, we felt like it was kind of a very good choice for the event. Um, and I considered... I considered just, you know, learning Chain or learning Starvo, but I was kind of intimidated by, intimidated by the decks. I felt like I wouldn't be good enough in the mirror playing Starvo, and I felt like um, Chain is just like a pretty hard deck that I didn't have that much experience on. Um, these days, I think I'm intimidated a lot less by decks. Um, right. I had the experience of like picking up Kano and Blitz, and Kano players love to tell you how hard Kano is. And then I was like, you know... I'm not the best Kano in the in the world by any means. Like, I'm sure the Kano mains know a lot that I don't know, but this isn't as bad as I thought it would be after I played it a bit. So, trying to like have some confidence in myself that you know I can pick up a deck if I need to, and 
yeah, kind of getting back to your original question, I I do have strong preferences for decks, and I will try to make those decks work. But if I don't think that they're a competitive choice, I won't bring them. Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense, and I I do appreciate the shots fired at the Kano players out there. You're, you're not sure. <laughs> but, Sometimes um, it's hard to see how a deck operates from the other side, and you really have to yeah. like pick it up and play to to understand what it is that they're doing and the decisions that they're making when you know they're holding hidden information. Because um, mm-hmm. I also felt intimidated before I picked up Kano, and I'm like, yeah, it's not that hard to play, but definitely the other night in a Blitz Armory. Uh, Isaiah showed me lines that I could not conceive to to pull a win out, and I was like, I don't know how you can reconsider that. But you know, I thought my general Kano play was okay because of ex- the experience of playing against other Kanos. But yeah, mm-hmm. so I get it. So I guess just as the Fab meta develops and the top tier of the professional players continues to be refined, do you see eventually the the best of the best? players being hero agnostic and just truly no preferences they're just robots that see the best value in any deck or do do, do you think that there's still some value in in being a specialist and and having preferred heroes um it's like kind of both um i i think pablo actually wrote an article about this that was really wonderful um, and he talked about how he is very much not a specialist and he plays every deck and that helps him. And I think that there's a lot of value to that. Like, And I, I do some of that too uh, in testing and in casual games and everything. I try to play every deck at least a little bit so I understand it. And I do think that you need to have that range to really excel at some, like to really push up into the upper levels. I think you need to understand what every deck is doing. Um, but that being said, there's a lot of heroes in Flesh and Blood and they keep adding more and and yeah, some of them LL out, but like you can't really be a master at all of them. Uh, at least most of us can't. Maybe, maybe Pablo can, but um, <laughs> most of us can't be a, hero, a master at all of them. There's probably some that we're more comfortable with on than others. And um, I think that having... What I've found is I've actually taken great comfort in having, especially in this meta, like this meta is obviously very good for me because Lexi and Icelander have been fantastic, but I've always liked having a hero like Lexi or like Prism in my back pocket, so to speak, where I feel like, you know, I'll kind of try it out at the very start, have an idea of what I think of the deck, and then I'll spend, I think once Dust Till Dawn came out, I spent like a month or something just playing with all the new Dust Till Dawn heroes and seeing, did any of them seem good? Was there stuff to explore? And just trying to learn as much as I could about those. And knowing that, well, if it doesn't work out, I can give myself a couple weeks and tune the Lexi deck and jump back on that. And it's like, you know, it's going to be no problem. I, I know that deck really well. So I think having that like comfort pick to fall back on is really nice and can kind of let you explore other options and and they don't always work out you know like i spent a bunch of time on vincent and a bunch of time on bolton and i thought there was something there in both cases and then it was like okay maybe maybe not but it's nice to be able to do those things and i think that um so yeah i think being a specialist can kind of like help you also expand and play other things but i think it's hard to truly like master every deck in the format it's it's a pretty daunting task how long do you spend on testing those new heroes it kind of depends 
Um, I usually try to give a deck like at least a week. I would say it depends a lot on, to some degree, like how the games are going. Like, do they feel close? Or are the games just never close? Yeah. Um, especially into like the like the the top decks. Like it does does this seem like this is at all viable or not? And it also kind of depends on like, okay, maybe this didn't work, but do I have ideas on how to fix it? And if I do, then I'll keep trying those ideas. But if I start running out of running to the point where I'm like, I don't really know where to take this deck from here or how to fix these problems. I can't really find anything. I'm pretty willing to move off of them and wait until, you know, maybe somebody has an awesome event and they figure it out. And then I go, okay, I'll take another look. But if I'm kind of reaching that point of like, I don't get it or like, I I don't know how to make this work. I I'll, I'll move off of it and I'll, I'll switch to something else. I'd say like usually a week, but some decks, definitely more especially if they feel really really close i think the ones that are close are the hardest ones to evaluate like often if they're not good you can figure out they're not good pretty quickly but when it's like maybe this is like a tier two deck and i'm hoping to take a tier 1.5 or a tier one deck that that can be a little bit harder to find is this also an area where you rely on other people's opinion and testing procedures as well when they're either trying the same heroes or even heroes that are not part of the release set and feel like they have something there yeah for sure um yeah so in my in my testing team we have a whole bunch of people on discord and we'll be sharing our thoughts about different heroes and different builds and usually some people are more focused on a certain hero like there'll be like a couple of us working on bolton a couple of us working on vincent a couple of us working Mm -hmm. on levia kind of a thing and not to say that there's no overlap where we don't help or give input. Um, but often we kind of like have a little bit of a divide and conquer kind of a thing. Like, it's not like we really like assign it, but you yeah. know, people try to spread out. I'll, I'll often try to spread out in the sense that like, nobody's working on this hero. So I'm going to be yeah. the person to work on that hero and I'll try to make sure that that happens. Um, but yeah, definitely it's hard to cover all your bases and having somebody to, bounce ideas off of and kind of bring in new ideas is is really really valuable it's hard to it's hard to build a deck entirely by yourself yeah yeah just my last question about hero selection is for a lot of more casual players of flesh and blood they're really drawn to a hero because of their story or their art style or their design or something like that but from from your perspective as a much more competitive player uh, aiming to get those top results, are those things important to you at all? Do they add to the enjoyment of the game for you? Yeah, um, those things do matter. I feel like if I like the hero from an aesthetic perspective or their backstory or whatever, like that, that is exciting and cool. Um, I would say that just like as a person, I tend to be when it comes to card games or games in general, like I maybe it's just flesh and blood, I don't know. But I'm not as I'm not as invested in the stories. And I tend to be more personally invested in like both the aesthetic and the like the gameplay. Um just in terms of like, is this fun or enjoyable or compelling to me? Um, or like for example, like what made me really like Ranger was how resonant 
the design of Ranger felt like the the whole like loading an arrow and mm-hmm. digger arsenal and shooting it like that just felt really right and really cool and I really enjoyed that so I think I'm most drawn to like gameplay reasons for liking heroes but um but yeah for sure it matters a lot and um even though I will try to take the deck that I think is right I will also try pretty hard to make another deck that I enjoy more work if I can (laughs) no that makes a lot of sense that's uh and and that's I'm somewhat relieved to uh, to hear that answer. To be honest, that you can be a very good competitive player while still not having to again be a emotionless robot that just ignore the art. You know, it's just ones and zeros and math, and you know, there there's still a little bit there that that speaks to all of us. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's I think the biggest thing is just understanding that sometimes no matter how much you like a hero, it's not the right event for it. And not even that you can't play your hero at that event, but just understanding like, what is it that you want to get out of that event? Is Am I going into that event trying to win? Because if I am, this hero is a really bad choice. And I need to like be honest and upfront with myself. And I, and I, I talk to my teammates about this sometimes. I'm like, look, I'm not going to tell you not to bring that hero, but if you're trying to win, like don't bring that hero. Mm-hmm. If you want to go in and you want to have fun, yeah, bring that hero. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. We're all playing for fun. Um, even when I'm trying to win, I'm playing for fun. I'm playing because I enjoy it. So if that's your priority, then yeah, by all means, play it. But you do kind of need to be honest with yourself to some degree about how strong the deck is and if that's something that is important to you. And and it could be that it's not important to you. And I think that's really cool. And everybody enjoys card games in different ways. And you know, I don't want to take away from that. I don't think... Uh, one, one of my locals, he said, you know, I'm really not liking this meta very much. And this this is a guy that has won, I think, like U.S. Nationals for Netrunner. So very competitive guy. Um, but he's like, you know, for the Calling Las Vegas, I just want to play Pummel Vincent. It's not the best deck, but I just want to pummel people. And I'm going to count how many times I pummel people at the event. And he was having the best time in between rounds. And he was like telling us our pummel counter, telling us about like these wacky stories about as, how his opponents like had no idea what Vincent does. And he was just like having a blast. I'm like, that's cool. Like that's, that's really fun. And th- there's nothing wrong with doing that in an event, but don't, don't mix that up for trying to win the event. Like those, those are two separate things. And, you know, sometimes they line up, but most of the time they, they may not. And, you know, it just depends what you're looking for. Back at the start of the episode, you kind of touched on some personal life changes that you were making. You've recently become a full-time fab coach and content creator. Can you kind of tell us a little bit about what led to that decision? Yeah, a lot of it was just, um, I didn't really realize this, but I'm only allowed to take three days off per calendar year um, as like an unpaid leave. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, this didn't run, I didn't run into problems with this. I think it was just like, I guess it, what it was was last year, I don't even know. Um, I, I just like somehow didn't run into this this issue last year. Like Leal was in summer, so that wasn't a problem. And then like I guess I was able to go to Worlds and that was no issue. But then when it came to Baltimore, um, they said, Oh, you you've used too many days. And I ended up getting to make a request and getting to take that time off work and getting to go, but it was like a little bit of a battle. And I kind of realized like I can't, I can't keep doing this from like a logistical 
point of view and also just from a like i don't think it was good for me um i think especially like around report cards like report cards were often lining up with major events and just like that combination of report cards and marking everything and major event like it was really taking its toll and i was feeling extremely run down and burnt out um and something just like kind of had to give um and i ended up feeling like i'm at a point in my career as a teacher where I have quite a bit of seniority. I don't actually have a regular classroom job. I actually probably could have gotten a regular classroom job. I, I think the classroom job I've been trying to get came up and I I don't know if I would have got it or not, but likely. Um, but I just ended up feeling like, you know, my chance to play flesh and blood and do that is right now. Like I'm good at this right now. And if I... Mm-hmm. You know, if I take a break and come back to it two years from now, like, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if I will still have this opportunity. So it felt like if I want to do this, I should do it while I can. And um, teaching is great in the sense that I can go back to it and I still have all my seniority if I want to. And um, I can substitute for two weeks when I'm in town to make a little bit more money and then go off and travel for two weeks to Barcelona if that's what I want to do. And having that flexibility is like very incredible and feels, helps me, like I feel very lucky that it's kind of like worked out where I, it's not like the exact job I was doing, but by substituting, which is like very, very in line with my job, um, I just have this like incredible flexibility and safety net to just try it out and do it if it's working and if it's not working so much then i can go back to substituting a little bit more and just kind of make it all work so um yeah it's been a lot of that um i think part of what made me consider it too was just like coaching and writing i think i make comparable amount to what i make teaching maybe slightly more per hour, but it's like a little bit harder to schedule and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, But it made me feel like, you know, like if this can scale up, like there's, there's something there. It can, it can maybe work. And and so I'm kind of excited to explore that and give it a shot. So I don't know. The, the, the true answer is like, I don't know if this is going to work out. I don't know if this is like the best choice, but I felt like I needed a break anyways. And if I, if I don't do it now, I'm not going to get to do it. And I'd rather, try and know that it didn't work out then be afraid and then go well i wonder what would have happened i think that would really not sit well with me that that not knowing if i could have done something or not yeah the flexibility sounds really great to be able to to do that and try that was there something about fab's long-term trajectory that gave you maybe the confidence to also leap into this and try this yeah um i've just always been really impressed with LSS as a company. And when I listened, like James White had a recent interview on the Instant Speed podcast. And just like every time I listen to a James White interview, I'm like, you know, this guy is really incredible. Like he knows yeah. so much about this game. He's thought about so much. His head is in such a good place. And like, I just feel like the game is in such good hands. And it's not to say like everything's been perfect. Of course, there's areas that can be improved. But he just has such a good mindset about how to do that and how to constantly grow and evolve and adapt. And yeah, I I think that leadership and the community of Flesh and Blood has made me really feel keen about it. I I don't, Mm -hmm. I kind of don't have any 
doubts about the game doing well and con- like I, I don't know i know a lot of people are like oh well maybe flesh and blood won't make it like in my eyes like it kind of already is making it and as long as nothing goes super wrong i don't see why i won't be here to stay and i don't know i believe in lss i don't i don't think the game's going anywhere yeah i think uh felix are in the same same boat and i love listening to james white talk about the game and his like you already mentioned his passion his thoughts and how deep the they've gone in the creation of this game and what they have coming down the pipe just gives me a bunch Mm -hmm. of confidence in that they're they are going to strive and like we've talked about before when they do make mistakes they fess up to those mistakes and they kind of communicate with the the community at large saying hey yeah we screwed up or this is what we're going to do to try and fix things going forward and that you know it also gives us confidence that you know that the, the game is going in the in the right direction as it were yeah that, i think that open dialogue between lss and the community is really um something that a lot of companies try to do or strive for but i think that they've really for whatever reason they're they're very good at it and they've really mm-hmm. kind of excelled at having that open dialogue and having that positive relationship with the community which is so nice to see especially compared to like you know when i just quit magic and so many people are just like very critical and distrusting of wizards right now um yeah. so yeah it's it's nice to see and it, it it matters a lot i think you mentioned writing and you're also doing the coaching as well as being a professional player are these things that you're all in, you're enjoying so far and is there any other I guess little areas that you might be looking forward to branching out to to expanding your your fab content. Yeah, um, everything's been really enjoyable. I, I like it a lot. I'm sort of trying to figure out what I want to do in terms of fab content. Um, I've been sort of I've been meaning to get back to writing. I haven't been writing as regularly as I was at one point and I, I want to do more of it. So we'll see if we can make that happen. Um, hopefully having more time will help with that. And mm-hmm. um, I know that some, I know that some players like um, like Mara, for example, has a Patreon and I'm sort of curious to explore that, but I'm also not sure. I don't know. I think there's like a lot of planning that needs to go into that. And I'm not exactly sure like what I would be offering for different levels of support. And so I don't know. I don't want to just like jump into that and have it be not kind of half-baked. I'd I'd rather have it really well thought out. So it's it's something on my radar and something I've been thinking about, but I haven't quite landed on something that feels right. So I haven't, I haven't started it. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about coaching and To be quite honest, I'm surprised how many people out there get coaching for things like golf or tennis or piano, anyone picking up something very difficult and just wants to jumpstart their their learning. But it's still not very common, or at least I found it's not very common for people to seek that out for things like flesh and blood. and I'm just wondering from your perspective as a coach, what is something that someone like yourself or a coach can provide above and beyond just someone going out and playing games among their their community and, you know, looking at YouTube and reading Discord and all of that? Yeah, I, th- I think there's a number of things. Um, it kind of depends on the player and where they're at, I think. Um I can give you some examples of things that I work on with players. So one of the ones for newer players, especially, 
um, is they're just like, I can't win any games and I don't know why I'm losing. Or I feel like I'm not very good at this and I've been playing for a while and I like I don't feel like I'm getting better. Or I don't know what I should be working on. Um, so we can try and identify some of those areas that can be improved on and, and give some like ways to think about it and some ways to practice it. And I, I'll say I'll say right away that the most common one is just having like a basic framework of value. Um, so like the total attack and defense of your hand and making that as big as possible and valuing on hits. Um, Michael Hamilton has talked a lot about this. Um, I think like Fino has put out some content around value as well, but it's like a, it's not all of flesh and blood, but it is a very big fundamental concept. And I think that often for newer players, just like hearing that and working through it with examples of like, okay, here's a situation, let's evaluate it and count the value and go, okay, which one, what's, what's the best play here? And, and like just doing that again and again can help them kind of see how to think about the game in a more, um, I guess, like more structured way um, and in a way that a lot of competitive players are thinking about the game. Um, for other players, it can be things like, I feel pretty good and I understand the game, but I don't understand this matchup. And we can can we work on this matchup? And we'll 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 talk a lot about the matchup. We might play it a little bit. We might look at uh, vods of it, but we can really kind of hone in on that matchup and try and work on it. Um, it could be things like sideboard guides or like tweaking deck lists and getting them ready for the events. And go, I don't know how to decide between this sideboard card or this sideboard card. And I can go through that with them and do that. And um, sometimes the really strong players. Um, we'll actually mostly just chat and it will be about, um, it will just be kind of like about all their matchups and we'll kind of, they'll go like, here's what I'm doing into this deck. What do you think of that? And I'll go, have you considered approaching it in this way or trying these sideboard plans or, you know, talking about recent deck lists out there and why I think the cards are in those players' decks, um, those kinds of things. So it, it very much depends on like where the player is at, but it can go anywhere from like learning those foundational pieces to specific things like sideboards or builds or just um, you know event prep and getting ready for them and and some really like kind of targeted niche interactions. Um, so yeah, I usually kind of try and tailor it to what the person is looking for and kind of where they're at. But um, those are kind of the most common things that I do. No, that's really cool. And it's really cool to hear that you work with people of all different skill levels, not just players that are already very good and just looking for a little tweak, but it sounds like you also help people out um, in the more beginning stages of, of the learning curve as well. Like, is, mm -hmm. is that something where you bring in your experience as a classroom teacher to, uh, to just, uh, or, or how does that work, I guess, with your, your previous uh, experience? Yeah, for sure. I think it helps. It helps me, um, or it kind of like informs my approach. Is is the way I would say it. Um, there's a lot of like the idea of like teaching a concept and then giving examples and working through those examples with them and then trying to progress to like, okay, we've done some examples. Here's another one. You talk me through it, and 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 so kind of getting that progression of like, I'm going to show you something. 
we're going to do it together. Then you're going to try and do it on your own. And then, you know, maybe you go and you play some armories and you come back and we see how you're doing kind of a thing. Um, so that kind of like, I guess just like gradual approach or like scaffolding where I'm, where I can help people build up skills gradually with varying levels of support as they get more comfortable is, is something that is done a lot in teaching and I think applies really nicely, especially for the more, um, kind of like fundamental concepts. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, regarding your dual status of a very top level professional level player, but also being a mentor, do you ever have run into a situation where you're, you know, you're working on something with your team, uh, for example, for an upcoming event, and potentially there could be a conflict with something that your student wants to discuss? How, how do you keep those separate? Yeah, so I'm usually pretty upfront about thing about that with my students. I've had students ask me for like, can you make a deck list for me? And I go, well, it's hard for me to really authentically make a deck list for you because the way that I would build the deck list is not just my own, it's my team's. Um, and so I can't, I can't share that. But what I can do and what I often offer to people and has worked really well is I'll say, why don't you pick some lists from recent events that you like and we can talk about them and I can tell you what I like about them, what I don't like about them, what I think some of their strengths and weaknesses are, what are some options in terms of what we can tweak and I can help you build that into a deck that you like. So that's often kind of my approach is that I, I can't necessarily share what I'm working on, but I can give you my thoughts and what I think about what other people are doing and, and try and help build that deck to something that is hopefully more suited for that person and, and performs better at whatever event they're going to. That, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. And can you share some success stories from your students or even more generally, what's your proudest moment in your coaching or fab teaching career so far? I always like hearing how my, I always tell my students, like, tell me, tell me how the event goes. I want to hear because I'm just, in, I'm invested in them doing well. And um, I've had a number of students like who have set goals. Like I, I really want to like top eight a pro quest and then hearing them do that is, is really exciting. So I've had that happen a few times. Um, I've had students go and say like, you know, there was this game that, uh, I had a student tell me like there was this game that I was, I, I, I almost made a play. And then I thought about what we talked about with value and, and, and thinking about the on hit and, and I made myself go through that. And then I made a different play than I was originally going to, and I, I think I, I think I only won the game because I did that, and I was like, "That's that's awesome! Like that's that's what you want to be doing." Um, so I think just like hearing those stories of people like meeting their goals or having feeling like they're seeing what we're talking about pay off in their actual games is always like the most special thing to me, um, and just seeing them like grow and do better at events and, and have more fun with the game yeah well that's great and i mean your your passion and care for your students really is evident uh to us uh both in in terms of what you're saying but also you know this is an audio only podcast but i can see it <laughs> with the way that <laughs> you're talking now as well so that's that's really awesome 
guess my my last question on this topic is if, if you could give one tip for free to I guess just the average player out there what's the common blind spot that people have or what's a common mistake that you see or a bad habit that people have that you find you have to correct first thing the the biggest one by far is 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 value like i mentioned before um just making sure that when you play out your hand you're trying to get the most combined attack value and block value out of your hand as possible and then I guess kind of the next extension and level up of that is, okay, you're now doing that. Now you also need to consider the on hits that you're potentially stopping. So if you block a heat seeker for five, you're not really blocking five, you're blocking seven, for example, as like a really tangible one. Um, and talking about ways to like think of like an extra card is worth three. And there's like kind of all these rules of thumb. I, I think that that kind of value framework is by far the most common and most important one. Um, after that, it's probably just trying to understand like how you actually win the game and what an end game, what a winning end game looks like. Um, I think that's like the next one and is considerably harder to teach because it's it's quite variable. But um, I think a lot of players have like a really great idea of mid games, but they make kind of like critical decisions transitioning from the mid game to the end game and wind up in these spots where they, they actually can't win. And maybe had they blocked a little bit more and kept a little bit more life, even though it's like value neutral, like it's it's the same value, they, they would be in a better spot because they can later take a hit to to do whatever they need to do to win the game. So yeah, those are probably the two things that I see most frequently, but but value is head and shoulders above the other one for sure. Yeah, value is like the basic arithmetic of uh of fab at this point or your times tables or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And it's not everything. That's like the cool thing is like, I don't think it's just value. There's a lot of interesting decisions that don't boil down to just value. But um, I think for a lot of players, if you just do the most value efficient thing all the time, you would do a lot better. Um, Even if it's not always the right decision, it's just like overwhelmingly the correct decision. Yuki, I want to thank you very much for joining us today. Um, Was there anything like a favorite moment in flesh and blood that you wanted to share with our listeners before we close out the episode? So I don't know if this fully answers your question, but I think my favorite moments in flesh and blood are always centered around like the social aspects of the game. And so many of them are tied up with um, my testing team. And I know that, I know that like not everybody has a testing team and, and people go, Oh, like I don't have that. But like, my testing team is primarily my friends. Like uh, I don't, I'm not part of the wolf pack or, or anything like that. I, we don't, we're not sponsored. Our, our team is called team Stroop waffle. <laughs> we're pretty laid back. Um, and primarily we're a friend group. Um, and, and I think a lot of people have, have that they have friends that they play games with and that that's what it feels like for me. Um, and so I just love sharing events with those people and sharing like, you know, when I do well, but also when they do well and seeing like my teammates top eight or win or, 
you know, have a good run at an event when they've been having a bad run for a long time, but I know they've been working really hard. Those are so many of my favorite moments is just getting to like be at events with my friends and check in with them and see that, you know, even if I had a bad weekend that, you know, Zane or Ian or someone else had a, had a fantastic one. And, um, yeah, that's probably my my favorite thing in Flesh and Blood by far. No, that's a great answer. It was kind of funny while you were sitting there thinking about the answer. I was kind of already coming to the conclusion in a way, I don't know why, that I thought that it was going to be something to do with uh, your friends and their experiences and how you get to, you and they get to reap rewards in everybody's successes because uh, it's definitely a common topic among people that are playing this game with a bunch of people that they know or have come to know through armories or online skirmishes, whatever it is that they've created these friend groups and they spend time with each other. You want to see, I don't have to succeed. It's great if I do, but it's just as rewarding to see those people succeed and do well in the events that you spend time with. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I guess, like you said, like these are friendships, friendships that have come together because of flesh and blood and they're not people that I knew beforehand. And I think that's really, and they're, and they're like some of the most important people in the world to me now. And I think that's really special. Um, and, and like my testing team is like people from all over. Like we have people from Vancouver, we have people from Toronto, we have people from the Netherlands and Germany. Like it's, um, somebody from New Zealand, like it's just a bunch of people from the U S like we're just literally all over the place. And it's just kind of amazing that we can all come together and share these events and share these moments and have this commonality that honestly, I don't know how we ever would have all gotten to know each other. Mm -hmm. Otherwise it just, you know, there's no way. Yeah. Um, we're just about to wrap up here. Do you have any closing thoughts about anything that you want to share or any shout outs while you're here? Yeah, I'll give some shout outs to just everyone that I test with in Team Stroop Waffle, um, my local Vancouver scene, and all of the Canadians, actually. I've been noticing more and more, I feel like Canada has been becoming kind of close knit. Like, I think for like a long time going into events, there is kind of like the Toronto scene and then mm -hmm. the, the Vancouver scene and then the, the Alberta scene. And they're, they're like all kind of separate and more and yep. more there's been like exchange of ideas and information. And, you know, I've, I've really felt that at the calling that we're all just, we're, we're Canadians and we're all kind of working together. And I think that that's really cool and really lovely to see. So I've, I've been enjoying that evolution a lot. Sorry. I have one more question. Who came up with uh, team Stroop waffle? It's sort of a joke because um, um, we have a few Dutchies on the team, and and mm -hmm. one of them, uh, Jimmy Jimmy Nguyen, um, loves Stroop waffles and always talks about them, and he always tells people how they have to try Stroop waffles, and and sometimes he'll he would make jokes about how like oh you owe me a Stroop waffle, and then we're playing a uh, we're playing an online like the team league, the Fab team league, yeah. um, and. I don't think we did that well. We just kind of, people just played whatever they wanted to play, and it was, you know, it didn't it didn't go our way. But um, but we needed a team name, and went well. What should we name it? And we did it that because of some of the inside jokes about street waffles, um, and it just kind of stuck. Awesome. 
Awesome. Um, if anybody wanted to reach out to you to contact you for uh, coaching or any insight, where can they reach you at? Yeah, you can reach me at, um, you could DM me or tweet at me um, at Yukili Bender, or you can message me on Discord at, as well. I'm YLBTCG at, um, that's the Discord tag. So um, either of those work really well for me. I'm usually a little more responsive on Discord than Twitter, but I, I do I do get back to people eventually on Twitter. It just might take me a day or so. Right. And thank you so much for listening to the IP2 podcast. You can reach us on YouTube, IP2 podcast, on Twitter, IP2 podcast, on Mastodon, IP2 podcast at wraith.social. Thank you. glad the answer was more in depth than just working on tuna counters at the start of your turn <laughs> <laughs> it's free value you're bleeding if you miss that it's awesome. yeah, that tuna counter is important